Welcome, everybody, to Crystal Kyle and Friends. Today, we are talking to a uh, host of the This Is Revolution podcast. His name is Pascal Robert. Kind of reminds me, like, when you know how Stephen Colbert went through that phase where I don't know if it was a phase, but he said, like, oh, my name is Colbert. I don't know if he's playing a character, Stephen Colbert. Mm, I feel the same thing with playing. Pascal Robert because I want to be like Robert. The name's Pascal Robert. It's Robert. Oh, apparently it's Robert. Anyway, that sounds super French to me. Well, maybe it is. I don't know. Yeah, maybe it is. Pascal, I, I think, is also a French name, isn't it? Pascal's Wager. Was that from France? Look that up. <laughs> that whenever Podcast anybody says Pascal, I think of Pascal's Wager. Don't you think of that when you hear that? I, I don't even know what you're talking about. You don't know what Pascal's Wager is? No. See, this is how you know I'm like so much of an online nerd my entire life that I just assume everybody knows this shit. So here, I'll read you the Wikipedia entry. Okay. Pascal's Wager is a philosophical argument presented by the 17th century French philosopher. So you're right, it is French. Um... Blaise Pascal, Blase Pascal, it posits that human beings wager with their lives that God either exists or doesn't. Mm. So the idea is oh, even, even if you don't you believe, even yeah. if you don't believe, just why don't you just assume he does just to be sure that you don't end up in hell? That's the idea. Gotcha. Yeah, that's what Pascal's wager is. Okay. All right. Anyway, I think I got in that any right. Case. <laughs> if I fuck that up, I'm gonna I'm gonna be <laughs> ripped a new one. By the way, Pascal. <laughs> Is ugly is not the Pascal we're talking to today. <laughs> the Pascal from the the sixteen sixties. This dude is Jesus Christ, man. Yeah, that's even in Ooh. the like if that's what they did when they're trying to draw you, and that's the the like flattering way they did yeah. it. He may have had some of that, you know, the how the royals did inbreeding and mm -hmm. they had the, the Habsburg jaw and stuff. Whatever. And after it took like thousands of years, and then one day they were like, huh. Maybe we shouldn't fuck our sisters. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're not a pure blood if you do that. Anyway, we're off in Nowheresville. Yes. Um, Pascal Robert, who is our guest today, um, host of This Is Revolution, contributor to the Black Agenda Report and Newsweek. Super thoughtful dude. Very excited to get into all of the weighty issues of the day with him. Correct. But before we do that, just stumbled across something pretty interesting. So you were recently on Bill Maher's show. Indeed. And you went... Super viral. <laughs> Probably, well, I don't know. You tell me. Was it more viral than the last time when you gave him that face when he said, I'm looking at Amy Klobuchar? I think it was about the same. About the same? And, I'm, and I was surprised. I actually didn't really think it was possible... Uh, this time, because at that point, I mean, the left was all, you know, we all were in all in it together. Mm -hmm. We were all in on Bernie. So, like, there was a real, you know, movement to respond to the moment. So I was actually surprised that it got as much traction and pickup as it did. But you united the left. I, I, we haven't talked about this, but I want to give you a phenomenal amount of credit because you were the first person since the fall of Bernie to unite the left. I mean, when I'm looking, when I see both Sam Cedar and Jimmy Dore, cover you positively right, they're like mortal you, enemies the whole spectrum <laughs> yeah it's like oh shit crystal what have you done you just brought you just brought everybody together so anyway that was a fantastic but bill maher is now you know i guess he's dipping his toe into podcast world a little more now realizing that it's uh, a little bit more potent than he perhaps thought it was for the decade he avoided it um he's got his own podcast <laughs> thing but he went on i think it was howie mandel's podcast and he said something interesting about fox news and tucker carlson and how he's gonna go on fox news Let's take a look and then we'll react. Last weekend, Trump was going after me in his rallies. He got a big bug up his ass about something I said on my show a week ago about DeSantis 
being a better president. And so he started. And I, I lived through this like when he was president. He had right. an eight-month period where it was every... He, you know, he, he's like a comic. You had the bet. He, he does him. a chunk in right. his act. Right. He had a chunk about me. He sees that it works. So just like us as comics, the chunk works. We're going to keep it in. Right. So for months and months, it was just about this maniac says, I'm not going to leave if I lose. Well, who turned out to be right about that? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so he had a big chunk about that. And so then he started one last Saturday about, yes, I said DeSantis would be better because he's not completely crazy. And then he, he called me a radical left-wing maniac, which is not true. And he said... Uh, Fox, I said, he's always laughing at Fox News. Okay, true, I am doing that. And then he said, and Fox News kisses my ass, which isn't pretty. <laughs> uh, so I tweeted about that because, and oh, and he said, so they're, they're, he's booked on Fox News. Well, I wasn't booked on Fox News. He just made that up. I know, so unlike Donald Trump to just make something <laughs> up. But uh, so I wanted it out there that, no, I'm not fuck booked on Fox News, but I want to be. I've tried to be. And now, because of that, and because I tweeted about it, now I am booked on Fox News. Now we are negotiating, and I'm going to do Tucker Carlson. I'd love to I see mean, you go up against I mean, he had offered me before Tucker Carlson, and I said, absolutely, right away. And then they came back and said, yeah, but just let's just talk about the things we agree about. I'm like, no. No. <laughs> That's what? not why you have What you sort have. of stupid way is that to have an interview? No, we'll talk about everything. Yes, there are some things we will agree about. There's a reason why Fox News puts me on their website, and that's what drives Trump crazy, is because I'm not afraid to go after the left when they're wrong, and they're wrong a lot these days. I but I have perspective about who's more crazy. I cannot wait. Uh, I can't wait either. Interesting. So this is the first time you're seeing that. Yeah. Second time I'm seeing that. I'm curious your thoughts first. Interesting. I mean, you know, I'm very much pro-engagement uh, with people who disagree with you. I'm very pro-going in front of audiences that may not be, you know, where you may not be preaching to the choir. So I guess, I mean... A couple things. I do have to say on the DeSantis part, because this is what, something that came up when I was there. This is from the right, yeah, appearance yeah, yeah, yeah. that I did. And he tried to, he made this case that like, because I was trying to say, look, yes, prosecute Trump, but don't pretend like that's going to solve the problem. And he was basically like, yes, it will. Because even if we get someone like Ron DeSantis next, that's way better than Trump. And I just, it's not clear to me that that's the case whatsoever. No, it is definitely not the case because, you know, he made the point of like, oh, he wouldn't try to steal an election. George W. Bush and Dick Cheney did steal right. an election. And they, they were, did steal an election. Right. They they actually did it and they were way more competent. And um, so well, it's, I don't know about the competent. Well, part. they were competent <laughs> in that they pulled it off. Competent enough to steal the election. They pulled Correct. it off and competent enough to not only pull it off, but now have been like revived in the liberal mind and be some like weird liberal resistance heroes and have high approval ratings and whatever. So, yeah, in some ways, I think DeSantis represents actually a more dangerous threat than Trump, even though it's it's hard to, to rate those things. The, I'm sorry, go ahead. That's number, mm -hmm. well, if you want to respond to that, because then I was going to move on. Well, I was just going to say that, th but this is Mars' problem, is that now he doesn't look at politics like he used to. He used to look at politics through the realm of policy. He doesn't mm -hmm. do that anymore. Mm -hmm. Ron DeSantis is against raising the minimum wage. Ron DeSantis is against legalizing marijuana. Ron DeSantis, there's a great expose by More Perfect Union exposing his corruption. He's giving hundreds of millions of dollars to corporations and shifting the tax burden onto working class people in Florida. He's done a number of just standard establishment Republican things. I'm against those things as much as anybody could be against them. He used to be against them, but now he just thinks like, 
Trump is crazy. He's so crazy. He's so bad. He's such a dictator. Agree on all of that. That doesn't then make a standard establishment Republican good. It doesn't make a standard establishment Republican good. And right. now he's softer on them because Trump is so bad. Right. Right. So, I mean, I'm going to withhold my judgment until I see what this interview actually looks like. But I appreciate that he goes into it with the mindset of, no, 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 we're not just going to, like, talk about the things that we agree with and have, like, 15 minutes of, like, oh, isn't the left wacky? We're going to actually get into it. And on certain issues, I think, you know, that they could have a good exchange and Bill could represent, you know, a different perspective well on some issues that he still has, you know, that sort of connectivity to... I guess not left thought, but some of the areas where lefties and liberals might agree. Uh, I think that could be interesting. So we'll see. So, okay. I definitely want to watch the interview, number one. Yeah. Number two, I do like that he's going in there to talk to him. But the thing that really occurred to me as I watched this interview, which is why I wanted to talk about it, is the, the way Marr thinks of himself versus what he actually is. He thinks of himself as a very, like, iconoclastic free thinker. I just say what the truth is. That's yeah. how he views himself. Mm -hmm. In reality... He's a very standard centrist liberal. Mm -hmm. That's what he is. So, you know, look, every critiquing woke politics, easiest thing in the world. I do that all the time. You do that all the time. Mm -hmm. That's not like brave. You know, it's, yeah. it's very it's very standard stuff. Yeah. January 6th being bad. Yeah. I think that you think that it's, it's very standard stuff in terms right. of who he votes for, who he supports. He did go from Bernie Sanders to Amy Klobuchar. If you support Amy Klobuchar, dare I say. You're very standard centrist liberal. The point he made to you on the show when he said, who's going to be the next Obama or Bill Clinton to sort of right the ship for the Democratic <laughs> Party and steer the country in the right direction? And it's like, you just I, you just can't think of yourself as this brave, iconoclastic thinker if those that's where you are politically. So I respect the fact he's going into Fox News. I respect the fact he is going to rep whatever he believes. Yes. Right. And maybe. 40% of the interview, he'll agree with with uh, Tucker about wokeness being bad, et cetera, et cetera. Don't police jokes, et cetera, et cetera. And then the other 60%, he might take them on over some January 6th stuff or some Republicans being psychotic and trying to, you know, coup the country stuff. And so I like that he's going to engage, but I just... I just want him to understand, which he never will, that he is you're just sort of a standard centrist liberal at this point. So, you know, stop blowing yourself. I think you're able to um, maintain a, a notion that you're a kind of renegade when you uh, go against the, you know, the kind of like woke, the culture of woke or whatever. But I do that it's, and it's not hard. I know, I know. But yeah. just hear me out because okay. it's really not allowed. You, you can't do that really on MSNBC or CNN. So when he's consuming primarily sort of like mainstream sources, he doesn't see that view that he has represented very often because it is kind of off the table in those spaces. So even though a lot of the people that align with him politically at this point, the sort of like morning Joe types, they really think the same way that he does, including his critique of wokeness, but they're very wary of leaning into that or saying that. So I think precisely because he doesn't consume a lot of independent media, so he doesn't see that um, you know, perspective reflected, he's able to maintain the idea that this is a very renegade viewpoint. Well, and the other thing is, um, you're, you're right about all that, that w since he's disconnected from people who are making similar arguments or even more interesting arguments, he, you know, he's, yeah. he's got a blind spot on that. But like, he just did a, a monologue where he blamed violent movies for shootings. Like, OK, that that is you changing and that is you doing standard 1990s conservative Republican pablum. That was their argument. Oh, it's violent video games. Oh, it's violent movies. Oh, it's the culture that's leading to these things. And, you know, you, know, you sort of leave guns off the table. And what was the other one? He came out 
against free college recently. He said that that's like an elitist policy <laughs> or something like that. So in some ways, I think Marr has shifted to the right. Mm -hmm. So that would in turn make him feel more comfortable on Fox News, right? And then on the other hand, he does think like, okay, we can agree on the things we agree on, but I will take you to task on the things where we disagree. Yeah. Because of course he views Tucker probably as a total apologist for Trump and January 6th yeah, and all that is. stuff. And <laughs> yeah. so they're going to clash over that. Yeah. But I'd be surprised if they clashed on anything more than that. Right. You know what I'm but, saying? Right. But I guess um, it'll be interesting to see what topics are entered into the conversation. Because if they actually stay in the realm of like, you know, I'm sure they will probably do the like free speech, wokeness bad, cancel culture, whatever, whatever. Guaranteed. That, yeah. <laughs> that we can, you know, be like, all right, fine. That's fine. Um, and then if the the parts where they disagree stay in the realm of like January 6th and Trump being a maniac, we'll probably agree with Marr by oh, and large on that. No doubt. So it'll, it will be like, I will appreciate seeing that viewpoint represented and hopefully in a strong way with an audience that like doesn't get that at all at that hour. Totally agree. Yeah. No, I think, I think that, that's why I said, I'm going to watch it. I like the fact he's going on. Um, like I said, I'll be interested to see, like you will, the the topic that they decide to cover. Yeah, I guess that they might... talk about like free college and they're agreeing on that. I'm like, this is stupid and it's elitist and whatever. Right. That's going to be really irritating. But yeah. if they just are agreeing on the like cancel culture stuff and then disagreeing in the 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 Venn diagram of the area where we kind of agree with Bill Maher, I will appreciate that appearance. Yeah, I I just guess my my the feeling I have the most watching that though is just. Almost wanting to say to Bill, like, dude, get down off your high horse. You actually have very standard politics. You know what I mean? Like, they're not, they're not, they're not that interesting. It's also, I don't know. I find that, um, and this isn't isn't specifically about Bill anymore. But I also find when people's self concept is like, I'm the renegade. I'm the radical. Um, I'm always outside of the mainstream. It also becomes very limiting lens because then, you know, sometimes the mainstream is correct. And then you find yourself like twisting yourself into knots to try well, to not agree with that. Yeah, you don't know? get me started on the contrarians who I think are contrarians for contrarians sake. Right. I'm different. I think this. And it's like, well, there's a reason why 99% of people are saying the opposite because they're right. Yeah. You know, you know that happens sometimes. Sometimes yeah. conventional Every wisdom is correct. That's and exactly you have right. to be able to, you know, acknowledge that and go with that when that's true and just actually evaluate things for what is exactly what is anyway true. we'll keep our eye out for that yeah. and maybe if it's good enough maybe i'll yeah. cover it on yeah. my show or you'll cover it on mm -hmm. breaking points or on the glorious crystal kyle and friends <laughs> okay what else we got so um i would tell you what we got but i accidentally clicked out of it wrong i got it you're amazing i'm a genius That's why i love you okay. babe i'm a genius all right <laughs> so um this actually is ugly and it's serious so ken paxton of course, uh, the attorney general of Texas. Yeah. He came out and said uh, he will defend a 50-year-old Texas anti-sodomy law. So for those of you who don't know, I don't know what percentage of our audience doesn't know, mm -hmm. but sodomy is also called oral sex and anal sex. And uh, the Texas government, there are actually, I think it's over a dozen states that still technically have, have those on, on the, the law books now. But they're null and void because the Supreme Court ruled that you basically have a right to that. Um, so even though it's still on the books, it's not enforceable. But Ken Paxton is saying, look, now with Roe versus Wade being overturned, this opens up a new door here and I will defend them. I will defend the Texas anti-sodomy law. So the classic example of like 
you know, Republicans always cloaking themselves in the virtues of small government and freedom and liberty. And then I cannot think of anything that is more anti-freedom and liberty yes. than getting into people's bedrooms and saying, don't do it that way. Don't do right. it that way. Tell me Ooh, what that's sex icky. acts you perform. That's prove, degenerate. Prove Ooh. to me that you did not perform these yeah. sex acts. Oh, that's sinful. Or how about, I mean, right along with this, um, Texas is one of the states that's considering making it illegal uh, for women to, to help women cross state lines to obtain an abortion in another state. And then that's so extreme. It's insane. It's completely insane. And then you have these um, apps that are very popular that women use to track their periods that are saying like, oh, yeah, we'll turn that data oh over, over to the government. No problem. We I don't just, even need one of them. The most popular one said, oh, we don't even need a warrant. We'll just do it. And it's a third of women that use these um, the, of menstruating age that use these apps. It's very common. <sighs> To try to, like, Christ. crack down on, you know, divine whether or not you had an abort. Did you miss your period? Like, all your Google search words and messages you're sending and your geolocation, all that shit is going to be available to law enforcement and the abortion cops to come after people. Talk about Big Brother in your business. This is extreme lengths. I would just like anybody who supports this stuff, whatever elected Republicans support this kind of stuff, I just want them to be honest and admit, yes. I'm authoritarian. I believe in authoritarianism. I, I just want them to admit it. Yeah. Because that's the part of it that actually pisses me off the most is that they'll then turn around on the one hand and be like, freedom, freedom all day long, baby. And like, guns, no regulations, no regulations, none at all. Right. Not even a little one. <laughs> and it's like, but I'm going to need to know precisely when your cycle started and when the end date was and what type of sex acts you're performing in the bedroom and all of that. It's astonishing. And my guess is, and I don't know, you tell me. This stuff has to poll like ninety five percent. Forget it. What are you talking about? I know. I keep thinking about that too because there was so much discourse about like how defund the police polls, and I get it. The slogan <laughs> is unpopular. Eighteen percent is the number. Nothing compared nothing. to ask people how they feel about like having their sex acts, you know, or their period data made available to cops without a warrant. See how see how that polls. See or the yeah the anti sodomy law. How does that how does that poll at this point? I mean, please but, tell me about that. That's why I'm astonished. They're even saying it because it's like i get that a lot of the you know the the battles that have already been won <clears throat> i get the sense that to a certain extent they just sort of lay latent but there are ghouls there who still want to roll back the clock yeah but honestly when it comes to something like fucking sodomy and the right to a, to contraception yeah i naively thought like oh pff, we gotta get by we gotta be past this we right? gotta be done we gotta that. be past this that's, but we're not that's wild so it's they're wild. just the 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 religious right the evangelical right is just sort of waiting in the shadows and, you know, they, they see their moment here with Roe versus Wade being overturned. They're like, what else time. can we do? It's Let's go, go time. No, but that's it. And con contrast that to the uh, response of Democrats, which is like Republicans upon achieving what is, in their view, a momentous victory after 50 years of organizing and trying and plotting and stealing elections and everything else they've had to do. The very next day, there's, okay, what do we do now? How much further can we go? What are the next laws we can pass? Pushing uh, governors to call special sessions, to put new abortion bans in place in states. You know, they're pushing DeSantis now to call a special session to move their 15-week abortion ban down to six weeks. Missouri, Texas, all these states, like, ready to go. What's next? How much further can we push this thing? And Democrats are like, let's read a poem and send out a fundraising request. Yeah, and you know, this stacking of the judiciary from the Federalist Society— has been, I mean, that really was the slow motion coup that people feared it was. Because now you have, and we just got the decision, as of today that we're recording this, we just got the decision that the EPA now 
has been rendered toothless. Yeah. They're saying the EPA does not have the right. The Environmental Protection Agency does not have the right to environmentally protect. Yeah. They're saying you can't regulate carbon emissions under the Clean Air Act. Even though Congress gives them that authority, like writes this legislation, gives them an authority, they're like, no. Nah. So the way they weasel out of it is they say, well, hold on now. The EPA is going above and beyond anything that Congress specifically delegated them to do in the Clean Air Act. That's what they say. That's their argument. Here's how you know that's bullshit. If Congress passed the Carbon Emissions Regulation Act, yeah. they would still say you're not doing it by the letter of the law enough. Mm -hmm. So what you're doing is unconstitutional. So what we are in, as I keep saying this and shout out to Carl Bezier, who now is also reintroducing this into the national lexicon, the vernacular. But, yeah. And I want other people to start mentioning it, too. We are in the new Lochner era. Correct. The Lochner era was an era of the Supreme Court where they effectively said an employer and an employee <laughs> has a right to contract, which means the federal government or, you know, the government cannot step in and regulate that contract. You have a yeah. right to the contract. So that means no um, child labor laws, no minimum wage laws, no overtime rules and overtime laws, no limits on the amount of time that you can work because, oh, you're stepping in between an employer and an employee and violating their right to contract. And that led to a Supreme Court enforced uh, constitutional laissez-faire capitalist system. And the only time that went away is in the New Deal era when FER took a sledgehammer to him and said, I'm not going to let this stand anymore. Yeah. Now we're right back in a Lochner era. We're, we're right back in one. And I don't think any of the Democrats have the fight, have the tenacity, have the intelligence, yeah. have the strategy to get us out of this era, which is a devastating thing because even if you get a president who's in favor of some of the right things. They try to pass a free college bill, try to pass a universal health care bill. You could run Roll right back. into a brick wall with the Supreme Absolutely. Court because they're going to go through every single line of that bill and say, oh, the way you interpreted this is wrong. The way you're trying to enforce this is wrong. Therefore, we got to throw the whole thing out. Well, and I want people to understand, too, that the Federalist Society, at least the uh, a lot of the big money backing that, this was the real goal. So there was an alliance between the religious right and the uh, libertarian corporate right mm -hmm, to effectuate mm -hmm. this outcome. So this destruction of the administrative state and inability of, you know, government to govern— this was the this is like their sort of like Roe versus That's Wade right. victory. And ultimately, maybe even though Roe is, you know, extraordinarily visceral and obviously also very consequential, this may ultimately be even more consequential without left a doubt. unchecked because this without a doubt. this really touches every part of government, any program that you that you want to pass. And I have here one of the quotes from FDR when he decided to go forward with and he didn't even have to pack the court. He just had to threaten, threaten it and they credibly. Right. And they were like. All right. We they gotta... said the Social Security Act was unconstitutional. And FDR said, my ass, you're saying that if you do say that, I'm going to pack this court and get my way anyway. So you better back off. And they yeah. backed off. And what he said to the American public was, in effect, four justices ruled that the right under a private contract to exact a pound of flesh was more sacred than the main objectives of the Constitution to establish an enduring nation. The court has been acting not as a judicial body, but as a policymaking body. We have therefore reached the point as a nation where we must take action to save the Constitution from the court and the court from itself. The two times in history where we've had president really check the power of the Supreme Court. Two best was presidents we've ever had. FDR and Lincoln. Abraham and Lincoln. And not an accident that both times after the president took that um, that step of, I mean, in Lincoln's case, he not only, he packed the court, 
He actually did. He reorganized the judiciary and then just flat out ignored what the Supreme Court did. Right. And that enables emancipation. That enables reconstruction. And in fact, it's so this is a great, you know, democratic expansion, small d democratic expansion. It's when the Supreme Court starts to reassert themselves that we end up with um, the Supreme Court effectively enabling the Jim Crow era. And it's only then when FDR comes around that in checks the court again, that we're able to have the New Deal era, which for, you know, its flaws in terms of, uh, you know, uh, racist enactment, that also enables another uh, small D democratic expansion. So we have had these instances in history, similar level of overreach, where the justices are acting like unaccountable kings and queens, zero, uh, you know, concern for will of people, um, putting in place uh, their own agenda uh, that could not be won at the ballot box. I mean, that's what's really going on. You're not protecting people's rights. You're putting in place and protecting a regime that could not be won at the ballot box. So it's fundamentally anti-democratic and has to be checked. The Lochner era was defined as judicially activist, but politically conservative. And that's exactly what we're seeing right now. And on that point, citing the, the ruling overturning Roe versus Wade, the state of Alabama asked a judge to let the state enforce its ban on health care for trans youth, claiming, and I quote, no one, adult or child, has a right to transitioning treatments that is deeply rooted in our nation's history and tradition. So here they are saying now it's not just, oh, trans kids, you know, this is crazy. Let's debate it. Let's figure out whether or not it's the right thing to, to give them treatment. Now they're saying this should be even totally adults. All. So if a state decides to ban transitioning even for adults, they're saying that should be allowed. And Texas is saying if you are a parent who, you know, in your family has decided to, you know, support your uh, kid in their transition, that that, you know, that child abuse, child abuse, child abuse and CPS mm -hmm. should get involved. And yeah, I mean, listen, I know that some of this can sound alarmist sometimes, but the people who have been warning and making the most dire sort of warnings about where this could go have been proven correct. The Florida don't say gay law. We're now getting, you know, they say, oh, it's, it's just about parental rights. And this has nothing really to do with gay people at all or trans people, really. It's just parental rights. Well, we're now getting a window into how this is being implemented at the school level. And it has everything to do with the exact levels of, like, bigotry and authoritarian instincts and oppression that we um, that we warned about. People are literally being banned from wearing rainbow articles right. of clothing. Mm -hmm. So Lanyards. how it's being implemented, just so everybody understands, yeah. how it's being implemented, implemented is what Crystal is describing, even though the original law, the original Very law had all these provisions in it. They stripped them out and watered it down to make it less toxic. Then they passed it. But the way it's being interpreted and implemented, because these school districts don't want to get in trouble, mm -hmm. is in the more harsh version. Right. So no rainbow colors. You can't put a, uh, if, if you're gay married, you can't put a picture of your spouse on your desk. You have to report to parents if a student comes out to you. And you must use pronouns assigned at birth regardless of what the parents allow. So even this idea is parental rights. Well, if you're a parent and you say, no, this, you know, my child, though, assigned uh, female at birth, we are, you know, is identifying as transgender. We are using he, him pronouns. Don't care what you're doing in your household. So Teachers it's funny they say mandated. parental rights yeah, because that's the opposite of parental rights. Literal right. opposite of parental rights. We disagree. Rights. Yeah. And you can't, as you said, can't, they're they're saying don't even if you're same sex family don't put the picture on your desk. And again, the the rebuttal from the right and from DeSantis and spokespeople and whatever was like this has nothing to do with gay people. And myself and others said, oh really? So if you are a you know if you're in a heterosexual relationship and you put the picture of your wedding day or whatever on your desk, that's gonna be a problem for you. No way.
way. No way. It's only going to be enforced against people who are gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender. Uh, and that's exactly how it's being implemented. So I think just the bottom line here is that, um, you know, the the right is very emboldened right now. And for, for good reason, because they just scored a... Uh, monumental victory, and they there is no limit to how far they will push this. There is no limit. One of the things I used to say when talking about the American system was, look, when it comes to the economy, ever since the New Deal era, it's been a slow decline where they've chipped away at it, and now we're basically in the neoliberal era where corporations run everything, and they bought our politicians, and they run the government, so we're sort of stuck. We're stagnant, if not declining, when it comes to the economy and moving in that direction with universal universal programs, social safety nets, et cetera. But the saving grace was, hey, there has been a lot of advancement on social issues, whether it's women's rights, gay rights, racial issues, over time, we've clearly moved more and more in a direction of granting people more rights. Well, now, in a very short time frame, all of that's being reversed. Yeah. And it's like a dam breaking when you see all these decisions coming out of the Supreme Court. And like you said, it's making it so these state-level Republicans are like, oh, shit, what can we get away with? Right. How regressive, how authoritarian can we go to be deeply socially conservative and religious? Yeah. And like you said, it ain't gonna fucking stop. It right. is not going to stop. So you need to fight back. And the only saving grace is, it's absolutely true, all these things that they're doing, super unpopular. So at the very least, you could hold that up and say, look, this is what we're dealing with here. You want this? Mm -hmm. You want this? Or do you want something else? So, but, I mean, that's cold comfort because, like you also said, <laughs> the Democrats are reading poems right now. <laughs> yeah, I will say, look, I, I still think that the Democrats are in for a historic drubbing in the midterms, um, both because of their failures and, um, you know, I mean, look, 80 percent of the country says we're heading in the wrong direction. Right. It's, mm. it's not a good landscape for Democrats. But I have seen a couple of polls post row that looked a little less grim for Democrats where they had, you know, an edge on the generic ballot where you ask people like just generic Democrat, generic Republican, which one do you want? They had like a seven point edge, which would be in the realm because this deck is stacked. It would be in the realm of them basically holding steady in the House. Um, I saw a poll out of uh, Georgia that we covered on Breaking Points where uh, Herschel Walker is losing big time to Raphael Warnock. Warnock Ten is points. based, so I like, I like that. 10 points. Uh, it's one poll, and the polls have obviously been really wrong in the past, but you also have Fetterman in Pennsylvania. That's actually a Democratic pickup because that's held by a Republican currently. Um, he seems to be beating Oz. Oh, God, I hope Fetterman wins um, so bad. At this point, you know, pretty easily in spite of, like, almost dying. <laughs> and uh, so— uh, I don't know. I, it's it's possible that Democrats, through no doing of their own, just through the insanity of the Supreme Court and like, you know, there was a congressional candidate in Virginia, actually in the district that I and sometimes you live in, um, who is like questioning whether people can get pregnant because of rape. Uh, very Todd Eakin-esque vibes there. So maybe because of some of those factors, um, it turns things around a little bit for Democrats for the midterms, but uh. I, I should I should note, and I just saw this right before we came on air. Uh, so uh, Patrick Leahy broke his hip, and he's going to be out for a while. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay, Democratic senator. Yeah. Uh, right after we got that news, Biden says, "You know what? I'm open. Let's uh, let's make an exception on the filibuster for Roe versus Wade." So he's saying, "Yeah, we'll roll back the filibuster to get Roe versus Wade right. codified into law." Right. But you just lost the Democratic senator whose vote you needed in order to get there. Well, and also Manchin and Cinema have both said they're not going to okay, get. Okay, fair. And I think ultimately you're going to be correct in 
worrying about that. Well, Cinema did come out and say, I'm not in favor of that. So that's a problem right there. Uh, but Manchin did release a statement saying, like, these assholes on the court lied to me. And right. I like that. Yeah, so he in did. theory, he might he vote to codify Roe versus Wade. For Kavanaugh. Right. So in theory, he might vote to codify Roe versus Wade. But if Cinema says, I don't want to get rid of the filibuster even for that, then yet again, you run into a brick wall. But. Well, and, and he's been just as adamant in opposition to getting rid of the filibuster mansion, right? Yeah, so but even he if he I might didn't hear theoretically... him say anything. But I didn't hear him say anything in relation to specifically for Roe versus Wade, an mm. exemption for Roe versus Wade. And any indication that he's given on that front is like, these assholes lied to me and that's what I'm pissed off about. Gotcha. So, but ultimately, I mean, he's Joe Manchin. At the end of the day, he'll probably be like, yeah, I don't want to do it either. Yeah. You know, but Cinema already came out and said, I don't want to roll it back for that. So, man. All right. On that note, I'll it's let grim. you take it over. It's grim. We'll get into some of this with our guest as well. Uh, Pascal Robert, he is the host of This Is Revolution podcast. Wonderful podcast. Go subscribe, watch it, listen to it, all that good stuff on YouTube and on the podcast platforms. He's also a contributor to the Black Agenda Report and Newsweek. And here he is. Pascal, welcome. Great to have you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate being here. Yeah, of course. We both we saw you on uh, with Bree. We thought you were, you know, just uh, did a wonderful job, and we're really excited to get a chance to talk to you too. So shamelessly admitting that we're just stealing uh, Bree's ideas here. True. Good guess. <laughs> oh, well, listen, listen. I think I think that the more important thing for all of us is that we all realize what the problem is, and if the more of us work together to actually address the problem politically, I think that it works better for all of us because Amen. our goal is at the end is actually help people get the politics they need to address their problems. You know, as much as some people think that we're just doing this for whatever kind of self-adulation, you know, we at This Is a Revolution podcast, our goal is to really try to create a politics that addresses the needs of working people and most people in the country that I think all of us on the on the show right now will agree is not being done in the current political moment. Indeed. Pro-solidarity leftist. That's yeah, great. I know. <laughs> yeah, it used to be a sadly, thing. Sadly unusual. And yeah, um, right. the podcast really is wonderful. I've been enjoying listening to it. And I think your mission comes through loud and clear. I'd love to start just by kind of getting your sense your view of where we are in America right now. We had these, we're having these January 6th hearings, all kinds of monumental Supreme Court decisions coming down. Of course, you know, the really visceral one is the overturning of Roe versus Wade, but perhaps even more consequential is uh, this latest one where they're saying, hey, EPA, you actually can't do the job that Congress has told you to do, right. which has implications not just for dealing with the climate crisis, of course, but literally for governing at all. Um, so how would you sort of assess the state of America today and the level of existential threat to the nation? Well, that's a really good question. And I'd like to actually use a concept that we have in our show that we promote as a means to understanding exactly where we are in terms of American politics. And it's called the 50 plus counter revolution, 50 plus year counter revolution. What the theory is, is that basically since the rise of the new left in the 1960s, particularly around 1968, everything that has come about from the rise of Nixon, going to the uh, abandoning the Bretton Woods standards, the Nixon shock, the move that was the hard hat rebellions in the 70s. Bipartisanly, there has been a counter revolution against the New Deal civil rights coalition that has coalesced in the 50 plus years since that period of time. And what has happened is that American politics has become more conservative in a bipartisan direction. And that was typified with the liberal faction of the Democratic Party with the rise of Bill Clinton and third way politics with the Democrats adopting the DLC position of coalescing around corporate politics, alienating communities of color that have been the base of the party and actually trying to position itself to be a better steward 
of the corporate agenda of the Demo- of the of the ruling class than the Republicans traditionally have had. Hmm. What that posture by the liberals and the Democrats consequently caused was that it only left the space for the right to further more reactionary, more reactionary, and more base types of politics than before, because what had happened is that the space of corporate overlords that had been normally relegated to conservatives was now being auditioned by the liberal, or what we call the left flank of capital, the liberal flank of capital. So that the notion that the Democratic Party was was the party of the working class, the working man, the minority, was really ideologically something that was in the mind of those constituents. But in terms of the actual agenda of the policy of the party itself was to move in more and more of a direction to the corporate fulcrum of what the ruling class or those the lords of capital were interested in in to the detriment of the working class. And this is how you get things. I mean, people talk about the, the evisceration of the Reagan years and the conservative nature of those, of those politics and those policies, but yet it was NAFTA and GATT and the evisceration of the working class under Clintonian third wave politics that really dem- demonstrated the way in which the American ruling class was willing to throw working class people under the bus. So to get to your answer to where we see American politics right now, I see American politics right now as the final iteration of that 50 plus year counter-revolution against the New Deal Civil Rights Coalition coming to the point where somebody can make the argument that we're in a state where we're facing a reactionary right that's crypto-fascist or fascist, if you will, or some would say that it's come to the point where their, their reactionary nature is so overt that they are willing to throw away even their own traditional conservative principles. I think what we see with the Supreme Court case recently, there might be some truth to that, but it's not as if this comes out of nowhere. I look at the condition of American politics today as part of a 50 plus year continuum of reactionary direction of politics, reacting to what came about in the period of the 60s and what we have seen recently with the rise of the left that comes about after Occupy and Bernie Sanders is a small fulcrum of a progressive left that's trying to bring back some of that politics that we had in the 60s and with the old left with the socialists and the communists in the 30s and 40s. So Crystal and I were talking about this yesterday. Where the hell does it go from here? Because when I look at the political landscape, I have a very similar analysis to you. And I think that the influence of corporate money, billionaire money, effectively buying our politicians, buying both political parties, just having a stranglehold over the system. Um, I look at that and see in order to fight back against that in any effective way, that's not just tweaks around the edges. You need a new FDR like figure. You need somebody to sort of uh, break this neoliberal corporatist stranglehold uh, on the system. And, you know, I, I hate to say it, but I think the most likely scenario moving forward, not that I want this to happen, but I think the most likely scenario moving forward is that we just keep bouncing back and forth from a, a corporate Republican to a corporate Democrat, and the Supreme Court can continue to effectively codify this like constitutional laissez-faire capitalist interpretation of the way the system can run. So you're banned from even having basic regulations to a certain extent. And, you know, on the one hand, I want to say, look, things are getting so bad and it's so obvious and the polls are so overwhelming that there's going to be some sort of like giant backlash and there's going to be some wave 
that leads to social democratic reform. And I want that new era to be ushered in. And maybe perhaps it would be on the backs of, of a, you know, a new union movement that that's sparking up right now. But at the same time, I feel like the most likely scenario is that we sort of bounce back and forth in, in perpetuity because Noam Chomsky famously said, uh, you know, something along the lines of a, a dictator would blush at the effectiveness of the American system of governance because you just go back and forth between corporate Democrat, corporate Republican and working people are, are effectively pushed to the side in this movement. So what do you make of that analysis and what do you think is most likely and what do you think is the best way to fight back against it? I think that that, that, that analysis is a, is a likely prognostication if we ignore a certain very important factor, and that's organizing working class people where they are. And I think that one of the problems I think that we've had for those who have more left of center politics is that as, no, as much as we are willing to discuss the electoral realm and what's going on in electoral politics, we fail to realize that what has traditionally made the left effective in influencing the, the politicalist options of the political lords of capital and those who are generally the arbiters of the policy decisions in this country was the capacity to mobilize large scale numbers of working class people who were disaffected, who were more negatively affected in many ways and disaffected with the system at the same time to challenge in more, op, more, more effective ways on the ground, the function of the system, whether that be worker strikes, whether that be protests, whatever types of mass politics. And I know there is a debate right now as to whether or not mass politics is still effective in a period of time in which people are so alienated from their politics, where people are unsure of whether or not they're going to be able to get a return on investment from their electoral participation. But I would argue that the only way that we stop this coalescing around this reactionary politics that is really bipartisan, because it's not as if the liberals or the Democrats are demonstrating any kind of efficacy at trying to challenge the way in which the reactionary right is really, really surrounding around these West wedge issues. I think that the only thing that we have that we have to do is that we have to be willing to go into the spaces where communities are and organize them around a politics that tells them that they can challenge the status quo and not feel that they have to surrender to whatever they see coming out of this squawk box as the normative politics of what the Democrats or Republicans are offering. Do you think that uh, the era of neoliberalism is ending? Because this is something else that we have been discussing. Right, because on the yeah. one hand, it seems weaker than ours. Breaking down, not just here, around the world, you have you know, a wave of, of leftists and left liberals being elected in Latin America. You had you know, 2016, where you've got Brexit and Trump and Bernie and this new left energy. And um, you, know, you even have, uh, you know, Biden, I'm not going to give him any real credit, but you do have people in his administration talking about industrial policy, something that used to be completely, you know, off the table in terms of even discussing it in American politics. Now it's being discussed actually in the Republican and the Democratic Party. But on the other hand, Joe Biden is president of the United States and, you know, it's very likely to be Biden versus Trump potentially next time around. So in some ways, it seems like the whole thing is cracking up. In other ways, it seems like it's stronger than ever. So how do you square that circle or how do you look at that? It's a very, very good question. It's a very important question. It's one we've actually in, uh, addressed on our show. Now, neoliberalism is the kind of economic consensus that we see in this 50 plus year kind of revolution, where we see both a kind of hyper privatization of government functionality, a move to marketization in terms of uh, goods and services, and an attempt to really deliberately cut out the role of government in certain spaces, while at the same time, government roles are expanding also. But it's really a kind of hyper-marketization and a fusion of these private-public partnerships that end up gutting the capacity of government to fulfill a public goods governance kind of role. 
Uh, that politics really, really kicks in in the 80s, but it has precedence in the 70s. And the question becomes, have we gotten beyond that period of time? I would argue that what has happened is that neoliberalism has caused so much of a fracture in terms of us having political and economic stability that we've really sucked it dry in terms of what the capitalist class can get out of it. But at the same time, there is no clear path forward in terms of what can replace the neoliberal consensus economically in terms of political economy. Because there's an often trend with people who are on the left to say capitalism is falling, capitalism is crisis. Capitalism is very resilient in its ability to re-emerge and rebrand itself in a way that gives it a longer stead. Yes, it is constantly in crisis, but the question becomes, are those crises so internally fractious to the actual system that they cause a rebranding or reaffecting a reaffecting of how the system actually works. And I do agree that neoliberalism or that traditional way in which capitalism worked in the new in the post New Deal civil rights era in the post 60s era is fracturing. But I don't think that the lords of capital have found a replacement for it. I think that we've had real shocks to it. I think COVID was a real shock. I think this 2008 subprime mortgage crash was a real shock. I think the rise of the reactionary right that we've seen globally, not only with the rise of Trump, but in France, we have with the party of Marine Le Pen. We've seen the part, you know, in, uh, in Victor Orban, in Hungary, and all over the world, we see these parties of reactionary politics developing. And the question becomes, are we stuck in this dialectic, in this kind of two-part discourse between reactionary right-wingers who are rising in ascendancy because of the failure of austerity that was brought about by the neoliberal kind of liberal democratic, or you want to say like, for example, you have like the, 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 the Labour Party in England, that liberal party, the liberal parties have not effectively brought forth the bread and butter for American society and Western society overall. So the reactionary right in their failure have taken over. So the question becomes, has neoliberalism as an economic or paradigm basically given up in its capacity to govern? I think materially, the only thing neoliberalism can offer now is austerity. And if they go to austerity, we're going to have a reactionary right that might not be fascist-like. Yeah, well, that's. I actually want to push you on that because um, do you think that the ethno-nationalist model that is being offered by the Orbans of the world, you know, uh, Bolsonaro. Um, uh, do you think that that model is a break from neoliberalism or do you think it's sort of like neoliberalism under a, a somewhat different banner? I think it's authoritarian neoliberalism. I think it's an authoritarian. I don't think it's a total break from neoliberalism. That's a very, very, very sharp question, Crystal. I appreciate you asking that because a lot of people ask whether or not the authoritarian right that we see developing in the world, are they really an alternative to neoliberalism or are they really just carrying on that same agenda with a kind of reactionary racial nationalism? I have, what is fascinating to me, right, is that when I see certain parts of the Republican Party in their appeal to the disaffectation of working class men saying that they need almost kind of like social democratic politics, policies to get working men back jobs, get back to work, there's a part of me that asks, would the reactionary right, in order to fulfill its kind of racial nationalist agenda, would they go as far to even offer social democracy if it felt it would throw a bone to their base 
and keep their party in line with what they need to stay in power. I'm not, I have not seen total evidence of that, but one of the things that's interesting is that particularly the Trumpian manifestation, they do use a charade and an illusion of populism to justify their politics. So the question becomes, would they follow through with that with actual policy? I think that as long as they are in a position where they are not threatened by a more materialist progressive left, they won't have to do that. But if they feel that they have to maintain power, I mm. would not be shocked if the reactionary right, in order to maintain their base, would actually go farther than the neoliberals in implementing some type of social democracy to keep their people in check. See, I, on, on that on that one, I, I disagree because I see it's just the influence of the big money is so overwhelming that basically the the one rule of politics in America, if you're an elected official, is you don't cross the donors. And so I don't think the Republicans will do it. I don't think the Democrats will do it. And if you look at the history of this stuff, um, like, yeah, 2008 subprime mortgage crisis, Great Recession. It was then that you started to see the rise of like a new sort of populism. People thought Obama was maybe the next FDR. And then, of course, he turned out to be the next Bill Clinton uh, with Trump in 2016. Like you said, he had a lot of pseudo-populist rhetoric that turned out to be a facade. That was, I mean, he governed like he was George W. Bush in many respects. He was, wasn't even close to populist. And I think the thing that frustrates me is um, like the posturing, the lying, the changing of, you know, the wording and what you run on versus governing the exact same way. If anything, it's more pernicious than the Reagans of the world who would just say to you like, yeah, let's deregulate everything. And I'm, you know, that, that's, that's what I like to do. Um, and I guess the other part of this, which is depressing, even though it's also a sign of potentially something good, is that the policies that people like us support are already super popular. So on the one hand, that's a great thing, because as a matter of principle, I want more people to be on that page. But on the other hand, it's a bad thing, because if we're looking at policies that are 70, 80, 90 percent supported, and we're not moving an inch in the direction, and I don't need to go through the list, everybody knows the list, Medicare for all, raising the minimum wage, I mean, you name it, like... What are we supposed to do with that? What are we supposed to do with the fact that the politicians will lie to us and then keep the status quo going? They'll pretend to be for better things and then they keep the status quo going. And the people are already where we are. It's like, it seems like it's the perfect recipe for a, some sort of a revolution to bubble up. But then at the same time, it doesn't seem to materialize. It seems to be we have this uh, a certain system that's set up in the US, which just makes it so if you're disaffected, if, if you're dissatisfied, people just do the wild swing from, oh, I'll vote Democrat, I'll vote Republican, I'll vote Democrat, I'll vote Republican. And it's like, if it's not going well with the Republican, they just go Democrat. If it's not going well with the Democrat, they just go Republican. And people like us sit here and we have this analysis of the system and we're like, Jesus Christ, it's like playing ping pong, but within the narrow corridor of what's, po of what's possible, if that makes sense. No, I understand. And by the way, I think your frustration with the belief that the, the reactionary right will offer social democracy is not totally unfounded. I'm not saying they will do it. I'm saying I'm worried that they may think about trying it if they have to, if they're pushed to the mattresses. I'm not saying they'll definitely do it. I think your analysis that they're wedded to a kind of capitalist form of neoliberalism is, is more logical in the end. But what I'm saying is that I don't, I think that one thing that differentiates this manifestation of the conservatives is that they're less wedded ideologically to things that they've tried before, and they're more interested in ultimate raw power than anything else. Can you know, I, in that, in that, I also, I want to, I want to so, bolster your point there because I think, um, I think Kyle is probably right in the American context, just because we do have so much political corruption because there isn't a, a strong and robust left that, you know, exercises a lot of power on our political system. 
I think you can see it more clearly if you look to other countries, though, like um, you know, Orban is like the perfect example here where a lot of the uh, the populist right in America looks to the sort of, you know, the policies, the, the social democratic type of policies that he's implemented. If you are the right type of citizen, you know, to bolster family creation and all these sorts of things, you see it also a little bit in France with Le Pen. And I think, you know, the, the example there is also really um, important because you do, of course, have a much more organized and powerful left in France. And so you have Le Pen getting to the left of Macron on um, all sorts of like, you know, social welfare programs. And again, it comes with a caveat, like we're going to keep out the immigrants and you have to be, uh, however they phrase it, you know, here they talk about what the, the founding stock or the classic American or whatever, but you have to be the prototypical in their mind French citizen. But yeah, within those bounds, she's willing to throw you a bone on the, on the sort of social democratic front. So while in America it seems preposterous because the left has been so cornered and so sidelined and rendered so impotent in terms of politics that it poses no challenge and so they can just say the word working class and then give a gigantic tax cut to the rich. I think you do see a little bit of stirrings of that in other countries around the world. Yeah, I think that's a very good way of framing it. But also what is interesting to me is that one of the key linchpins where I think it was possible, where it may not be total social democracy, but the thing is though, this rhetoric around the crisis of masculinity, the Republicans, this is a this is a bone that I think the Republicans are very good at throwing. This is mm -hmm. red meat for their base that works. This whole manosphere discourse that gives rise to people like Joe Rogan, Jordan Peterson, all these other likes. This is very deep and it resonates. And what I can tell you, it not only resonates in uh, in in more reactionary quote unquote white spaces, there are a lot of working class black males who are using the same kind of discourse as well. And when you hear, I forgot the name of what is the name of the uh, the the relatively new senator from Kentucky who's always talking about the crisis of masculinity and he's talking about things that we have to do for our fathers. I really oh, it was it's you you're thinking of Holly and Holly's Missouri, I think, right, Crystal? Mm. Yes. Yeah. It, mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. He's always harping on about this. I wouldn't be surprised if they use this kind of discourse as a means to kind of ring in their disaffected male bases, male base. I don't know if it will translate into, I would say, a full social democratic policy, but they, I could see some type of agenda that they would come forth to coalesce that politics to really actually create a more cross-racial alliance of disaffected men than people really foresee. And I think one of the most underappreciated real realization about this reactionary right is that they have they're going to have a more broad ethnic appeal than a lot of people realize in the way they're manifesting themselves. Pascal, what do you think that is what are they touching on there? Because clearly people wouldn't respond to it if there wasn't something there that they're kind of touching on or playing with. And you know, I think we see it most clearly uh in the number of Latino men who have um started voting Republican. But like where do you think that this energy and appeal comes from? I think this part of it, believe it or not, listen, we're all good leftists. We believe it is a material reality to politics, right? That I think that there is an economic correlation to the way in which neoliberalism, austerity, and the way the economy has disaffected young men in terms of their ability, young less men are going to college, young men are, are now the major minority in universities, professional schools, law schools in some in some parts of the country. I think what has happened is that the inability to repl replicate 
a form of patriarchy that was assumed to be normative for older generations in this period we call the 50 plus year counter revolution has caused a certain emotional crisis with a lot of men who frankly don't know where they can actually fit in society when they've been told most of their lives that the definition of masculinity is to be able to get married, find a wife, have kids, when they're competing with women who are economically stable, who have good jobs, who are not necessarily going to need to be appealed to in the traditional ways that women were when women didn't have as many options. And I think that, frankly, a lot of this movement is reacting to the fact that these young men have not been socialized in a way to deal with the reality in which that it's a much more complicated playing field and space. And I think a lot of them have a lot of gender frustration that is unhealthy, that has not been effectively dealt with in our social infrastructures as a society. We have the base of our economic, of our society, which is the economic order, but we also have the ideological superstructure, the educational system, the media system, the school system, the religious institutions, the social institutions. And I think one of the reasons why the politics we have in this country is not only so much because the base or the economy is so cannibalistic in terms of its neoliberal foundation, but the ideological superstructure of American society is not healthy enough to find a way to explain to young people why we have a society that frankly is so coarse in its ability to have them find a way where they, they can succeed in this place. And as a consequence of that, we have these young men who are feeling displaced, who are challenging that frustration in very in unhealthy ways. And the re reactionary right is appealing to that with traditional calls of masculinity that gets them to feel like the women are the problem. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's... It's definitely like a dog-eat-dog -dog world, a dog-eat-dog -dog economy. People are feeling that, and there's a crisis of meaning and purpose. And then to your point, I think when presented with a new kind of pop culture that comes across as cool and edgy and authentic, and you can sprinkle in, like you said, some reactionary stuff uh, along with some appeals to economic fairness, That I mean, that's a very... That's something that's hard to overcome. That's something that you can definitely see the appeal of it. I mean, you mentioned Rogan there. Rogan uh, just sort of tepidly endorsed uh, Ron DeSantis for 2024, and I did a whole long thing on my show just walking through. And this this actually gets to why I really like your stuff, Pascal, too, because my response to Rogan saying positive things about Ron DeSantis was to like, okay, here's his claim. Now let's go through Ron DeSantis's record. He's against the minimum wage. He's vocally against the minimum wage. He's against legalizing marijuana. He's vocally against legalizing marijuana. Uh, you know, More Perfect Union did a phenomenal video breaking down how he's deeply corrupt. He's taken a lot of money from these corporations in Florida. He basically lets them loot the treasury. He gives them all these tax breaks, all these subsidies, you know, and uh, as he pretends, like, I'm tough on these woke corporations mm -hmm, or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so all I did in response, like, here, here's the record. And that doesn't really line up with where Rogan says he is on the political spectrum. That very famous video that we both ran of him saying all the left-wing things. Like, if you really believe these things, then you can't support these guys. And I feel like that's a more, I don't know, more potent response than shrieking and screaming and shaming and <laughs> sort of <laughs> just saying you're a bad, bad right-winger or whatever. And so it requires argument. It requires evidence. It requires bringing up the relevant policies. And to the extent that any minds can be changed, that's the way that minds are going to be changed. And I just feel like you, you sort of are good going down that same path where you'll break things down logically. You'll bring in the relevant policies. You'll talk about the economy as opposed to what I would call a, a liberal class that it doesn't know how to effectively change, change minds or 
create a counter pop culture that isn't reactionary in nature? No, well, I think part. Of, well, I appreciate the compliment, but I think part of the problem is that we have to really understand what the goals of liberals are. Liberals only want to democratize an existing capitalist imperialist hierarchy with an equality of opportunity and redistribution for themselves. They're not trying to change the distributional paradigm. They just want to participate in it. As a result, you have to realize that their, their ultimate goal is to surrender to the existing hierarchy in terms in which the, their constituencies, whether they be people who are black, brown, or otherwise, can, can participate. Now, people will say, well, what's wrong with that? Well, what's wrong with that is if you understand that capitalism, imperialism requires the pie eventually shrinks, then you're asking for people to basically act, fight for various numbers of chairs on the Titanic. And that's what ends up happening in the end without actually trying to redistribute the way the pie is set up in the first place. And one of the reasons why liberals are so ineffective in trying to challenge the status quo is because they're not trying to challenge the way in which capitalism and imperialism work, as we who are progressive and on the left are trying to do that because we realize that's the core of the problem. They simply want to fight on the terms of reaction which is to include themselves in the system minus all the racist and sexual orientation and anti-woman stuff. Well, the thing is though, if we don't realize that, this, that capitalism and imperialism in and of itself requires an otherization of certain communities to be marginalized, then again, you're just rearranging the deck chairs on the, deck, on the Titanic. Yeah, and so um, elaborate on that a little bit then. How does the uh, neoliberal focus on representation politics and identity politics, how does that sort of fuel that reactionary right? Because if we if we take that neoliberal argument to its logical end, it assumes that as long as we have 14% of the ruling 1% of America be black, 60% be white, and 18% be Latino, everyone else can be a slave or anything else, and we're just fine, because we have the proper fulcrum of representation at the top and everything. In other words, as long as the harm, regardless of what the nature of the harm is, is equally proportionally dis dis distributed, then nothing's wrong with the system. Well, what that fails to realize is that you know the harm can be egregiously terrible, and it doesn't make it any better simply because we've spread it equally around in terms of racial proportionality. What we need to do is to stop the harm in the first place and root the problem in realizing that the political economy that we have, which is called capitalism, particularly in this neoliberal version of it, is based on requiring more and more people rendered to surplus economic redundancy. And so, Pascal, what are some of the programs that liberals have instituted that are kind of in line with that view? And what has the overall impact been, not just on um, black people who are, you know, more towards the high end of the income, but across the entire spectrum of black life in America? Well, I think that the thing, the thing we have to realize is that one of the things that during the civil rights movement that Dr. King and his acolytes realized is that as much as they were fighting for what Preston Smith in his book talks about called racial democracy, in other words, racial inclusion on the terms of capital that exists, that that's not going to be enough to change the condition of Black people because the political economy of American capitalism is going to relegate Black people disproportionately to the margins because capitalism requires a racialized other that is going to be disproportionately relegated so that supermajority of Americans who are right do not white do not realize the system is also failing them. And one of the consequences is that in the period of neoliberalism, we see the increases of minority set-aside programs, we see the increase of affirmative action in these programs, which did help create a Black 
middle class. And I'm not saying that those programs weren't good in terms of fight, helping fight discrimination and in the workplaces, but at the same time, they did not do enough to change the distribution of resources for poor and working class communities that were facing deindustrialization, that were facing increasing mass incarceration because of poverty, and they were facing rising rates of urban poverty and urban crime. So as a consequence, we had this kind of two-tiered response to Jim Crow, where we have a class of Black people who are fairly integrated into the ruling class and the upper middle class, and we have large, large segments of Black people who are getting cannibalized by the same capitalist system. So because the liberal agenda is not interested in redistributing, as many Blacks who were from the 30s and 40s who were socialists and Marxists and communists realized that there's going to be a need for social democracy, in other words, to redistribute wealth from the top to the bottom so that we can have more economic inclusion into the nature of a more redistributive society, what ends up happening is that you have the wealth gap between Blacks amongst Black people with the, the Black 1% and the Black 99% be greater than amongst whites. Hmm. So, Pascal, let me give you one of my theories that has gotten me in trouble over the years, and I'm curious what your reaction to it is. So, one of the things that I argued, I think it was particularly during the, you know, the Bernie Sanders run, uh, maybe the second one, is that are there some issues that impact minority communities that need to be dealt with on their own merits? It's like its own thing. Absolutely. But I, I would argue the overwhelming majority of issues that impact minority communities require universal solutions that apply to everybody. So let me give you some examples. Um, the drug war is enforced in a way that all the statistics show is disproportionate. You know, uh, Black people get arrested more for selling drugs, but white people sell drugs more than black people. And we can go down the list of the various uh, statistics. The death penalty as well is implemented in a racist way. Uh, you get a white person and a black person who commit the same crime. The black person is statistically much more likely to get the death penalty for that. But even given those two examples, the solutions are, number one, end the drug war, which would apply to everybody. And number two, stop the death penalty, which would apply to everybody. Another example, minimum wage. Um, yeah, I think Bernie brought this up. I don't know if it's still the case, but Bernie used to say that uh, this actually is a women's rights issue, particularly because the majority of minimum wage earners are women. Yeah. So if you raise the minimum wage for everybody, that in and of itself is sort of a feminist victory, correct? So now when I say that, you know, a brash, young, privileged, cishet white men or, or whatever I, I would be described as, people sort of get triggered by that and they don't like it. Because here's a, you know, a white guy that would say, oh, downplaying racial issues because he just said the solutions are mostly universal. To which I respond, yeah, the solutions are mostly universal. And I don't care if that triggers people. Now, am I right about that? Am I wrong about that? And break that down for me. Well, well the thing that's interesting is if you actually study black political history, you read a book that was published in 1944. Now, obviously, the title is kind of antiquated because it's 1944. The title of the book is What the Negro Wants. And in the book, you hear the policy agenda that was put forth, even by liberal elites in the black community. And what you'll find is that most of the stuff they wanted was universal policies. They wanted, they wanted union-based jobs. They wanted uni universal policies, universal social welfare policies. And they wanted universal programs and policies that would actually integrate black people into the economic function of American society. And what they realized is that those were the ways that were best able, and they were reacting, by the way, to the Black left that existed at that time in the 30s and 40s, many of whom were socialists and communists. And they were realized, even as liberal elites, they realized that, listen, these social democratic policies are going to be the best way to address the needs for our community. And what happened is that when you have the rise of McCarthyism, 
those kind of policies fall to the wayside and we move to racial democracy away from social democracy, which forces us now into this kind of race first type of agenda facing, forcing us to look at policies that are based on race. And what Preston Smith does in his very, very good book on racial democracy in Chicago, he shows us that whenever you have these race first policies that are not based on class based or social democracy or uniform or universal agendas, you always get a situation where they benefit black elites and they disproportionately disserve black poor and working class people. And what you always find when you have class based or social democracy is that it overall has a better spreading of the agenda and the benefits to all black people regardless of their class location so in other words i'm right i <laughs> just want to clarify for everybody kyle klinsky correct um <laughs> pascal and yet we saw that even though bernie sanders performed much better among minority communities than the media ever wanted to admit he had a real problem winning over black people in particular in the south what do you think that that is um rooted in and what do you think that we can do to overcome that well, I think that one of the things we have to realize is that we have in America called what's something called the black political class. And what is the black political class? The black political class is the, is the consortium of elected officials, political organizations, membership organizations, uh, uh, church, church institutions that make up the ideological superstructure structure and echo chamber of the black community. These are the people that control the get out the vote drives. These are the people that when Clyburn is uh, basically coming around to the South Carolina primary, he has their phone numbers in his Rolodex. These are the HBCU presidents. These are the membership organizations, fraternities and sororities who do the get out the voting, who run the ballot initiative, the, the whole ballot boxes. What Clyburn is able to do or what the black political class is able to do in exchange for the patronage that they get from the corporate ac acolytes of the Democratic Party, they are able to trade in fealty for their support to the Democratic Party but for the way and their ability to allocate that patronage to their constituencies. So what happens is that there is an internal superstructure that exists in some of these Black communities that will require a more effective puncturing to preclude the capacity of the Black political, political class to corral Black voters around certain candidates. So what happens is that when the primaries in the South happen, the Black political class are going to say, well, listen, we know Hillary, she's been with us. And they also, there's an economic consequence to that because those Black political class members have been handing out patronage and services and goods and services policy to their constituencies as well. In order to puncture that type of politics, we've got to find a way to neutralize the capacity of the Black political class, which is wedded to the more corporate centrist faction of the Democratic Party, because that is the faction that has the patronage that they dole out to their constituencies in exchange for that allegiance. There's got to be a way to puncture that ideological superstructure or that politics is not going to change. How do we do that? Do you have any thoughts? <laughs> How do I we pull that, that off? The way that has to be done, first of all, is exposing the truth about that. Number one, two, two Black communities who are instantly aware that they are being used in that way, but have never been exposed to the actual reality. Well, this is how people like Clyburn and the Congressional Black Caucus maintain these allegiances. And one of the things we have to do is that we have to have a politics that's more interested in meeting people where they are in their spaces and actually engaging in Black communities with people who are more aware of what their economic needs are. Mm. I think that what that would require is people like Bernie to have people who are more in tune with what the material conditions are of black spaces, black people in these spaces and go to them where they are in their churches, in their meeting halls, in their, in their, in their, in their you know, in their lodges, in their, in those places 
and talk to the people in those places and develop relationships. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be something that's very, very hard. But you look at someone like Corey Bush, and she was able to do that in St. Louis. She defeated the black political class there and became a very, you know, a somewhat progressive candidate. But again, if you look at Nina Turner, you look at India Walden, the black political class is one of the most effective tools centrist Dems have right now to neutralize progressive. Look what Bakari Sellers is doing to Rashida Talib in Detroit right now, using APAC related political action committees to actually dislodge her seat in Michigan under quote unquote racial allegiance grounds when we realize that there's other things besides that that's motivating his willingness to try to get rid of her. So it's interesting that you mentioned this because the black political class has been one of the most effective mechanisms the Democratic Party has used to neutralize progressives, yet no one talks about ways of talk, taking them on head on where they are one of the main problems to having a progressive politics in this country. Yeah, even uh, even Jamal Bowman and Mondaire Jones, who are, you know, left, relatively speaking, in Congress, you know, I guess you could say sort of squad aligned. Yeah. Even there, the districts have now been changed where I think they're trying to oust. I think it's Mondaire Jones, right? Who's the one who said he's going to run against Mondaire? Do you remember? Uh, yeah. So I think they actually so he's going to now run in a different district. Right. But they so did that without telling him each other. But yeah, they just they changed d- the districts without telling him. And then Sean Patrick Maloney, who's the head of the um, DCCC, was like, actually, I'm going to run against you. I'm going to run in that district. And these are people yeah. who are like kind of like in the club a little bit but just a little bit too much of an outsider for the club to be really comfortable. So, I mean, they, they yeah. I, there is no tolerance for yeah. true well, outsider. I know from Nina's race, you know, and, oh, and don't get me started on that. she and I have been friends for a long time, but the level of pressure from the Congressional Black Caucus in particular that was applied to Corey and to other squad members to stay out of that race um, and for the progressive caucus to come in and endorse Chantel Brown was, I mean, they, they were willing to do anything um, to, to make sure that that happened. And, and you're right, you can't deny that this has been a very effective tool. I mean, look no further than the 2020 Dem primary and, and Clyburn's role um, and how he was able just like that to flip the thing around and the combination of him and Obama working in concert. Stop. And that it was like that, it was over, it was done. PTSD's hitting me. And he has Xanax. <laughs> I mean, it's, 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 I mean, it's a, the conundrum is very, very obvious. And I'm going to be very transparent. How are you going to get a, a burgeoning progressive left that is not as racially diverse as we would like it to be mm-hmm. to address a black political class that's able to leverage its bona fides to the civil rights movement and accuse them as being the problem as to why we don't have progressive politics. Right. And this is where the role of the black left becomes necessary. We need to have a more vibrant black left to be able to do that. And this is why my comrades at Black Agenda Report, where I've been writing for several years, I find their work valuable. But we, we need more people to make that analysis because that type of black radical politics has been out of fashion for a long time. And there are so few people who are able to make that kind of materialist analysis of black politics that frankly, it, it leaves us to the position where black people, when you say it, it's like, oh, well, y'all are talented to those white leftists. It's like, no, we have a whole tradition of black radicals who have challenged this kind of politics in the past. But unfortunately it's become so alien in the context in this 50 year plus kind of revolution that people just think that you're being used as a tool when you bring it up. T- tell me your thoughts on this is the this is the debate we always come back to at the very least every four years when a presidential election rolls around. But tell me your thoughts on 
um, your philosophy in regards to lesser evil voting and electoralism. Because myself, I don't need to go through my whole spiel, but I've always told people I bounce back and forth depending on my mood, depending on the day. You know, I was thankful enough to live in New York for so long where it's a safe state. I don't really have to go and cast my ballot for a warmonger like Hillary Clinton, and I could still sleep with a, a clean conscience at night. But if I was in some semblance of a swing state, I maybe would feel a little pressure to like, well, I definitely want to do less harm. Less harm is better than more harm. So I sort of struggle with the question overall. I'm curious what your thoughts on it are because you're a very thoughtful dude. Well, it's interesting because my editor at Black Agenda Report, before he passes away, Glenn Ford, he had a saying. He didn't call it lesser of evil voting. He called it the more effective evil. Mm. And that was the way he would deem Democrats who were running against Republicans on this lesser of evil line. And he was saying is that because when you vote for them, because once you vote for them, you're not going to challenge them. They're going to be able to do more of the effectively evil stuff that you wouldn't have taken from a Republican in the first place. But my position is that in terms of a current, when the current situation we're in right now, where we have, you know, with the rise of the reactionary right, with, you know, Trumpism, and we looked at what we see with Roe versus Wade, I can understand why people are saying, okay, listen, we have to coalesce with the Democrats. I get that. If we have a presidential election, we can't allow Trump to win. I understand the logic of that. But what exactly is the practical consequence of a politics for progressives and leftists if blue no matter who is the only diagnosis we have of the political situation and we're not organizing political options outside of that? What ends up happening is that as the reactionaries get more and more conservative and more and more reactionary, we're stuck in the same position over and over and over again, and we're never put in a position where we're able to recalibrate to develop a politics where we can actually mobilize around the issues that actually working class people care about. So I think it's a very dangerous conundrum that we get ourselves stuck in, where we're like, we got to support the Democrats because we're afraid of what the Republicans can bring forth, because that means that we're surrendering our politics to fear, and I don't think that's a good motivator in the long so I voted for Biden in, and I live in Virginia, so it's kind of a swing state. Um, Glenn Youngkin being governor now would say it's definitely a swing state. Um, and I'll tell the reason I did is very simple, and I feel good about it because um, I knew that he would put better people on the National Labor Relations Board than a Trump. Right. Um, and in fact, the only part of the government that actually seems to be functioning decently right now is the National Labor Relations Board, which has been absolutely essential in a lot of these grassroots labor victories. So they ruled yeah. very early on with the Starbucks workers. Um, you know, they uh, they issued some key decisions that enabled those very early wins in Buffalo that then sparks a movement across the country. Of course, they forced the redo in Bessemer, uh, Alabama for Amazon, which ends up a lot closer, even though they still, it looks like, didn't succeed. But even now, I mean, Amazon is trying to overturn the election results at the Staten Island warehouse. And so I'm very grateful that we have an NLRB that is at least not actively outright hostile to working class people, because in my view, the most hopeful thing that we have going in the country right now, by far, is the new energy among um, these, you know, young, more militant labor activists and the way that that has really ignited a spark across the country. And I, I think because it has provided because people are very frustrated with electoralism. You know, Obama says, don't move vote. They're like, we did. It still sucks. What are we going to do now? And this provides a kind of an answer and gives people some efficacy and a really productive direction to put things in and also puts class politics and material politics back at this and democracy, like actual democracy, back at the center of the conversation. 
No, it makes that makes it makes a lot of sense. I'm listen. I first of all, I'm one of these people who I have a problem with people telling people who should they vote. People should vote their material interests. You know, what I'm saying it's not my role to tell you who you should or you shouldn't vote for. My goal is to explain how politics works, how to put what your political options are, and to tell you you should vote in your material interest and what you should expect from the candidates one way or the other. But at the same time, there's a logic as to why one would have voted for Biden in that situation. And you realize that he's going to be better, better for labor than, than a Trump would have been, particularly when it comes to, to, to union rights. And it makes sense. What I'm saying is that when it comes to some of the policies that we care about as a as progressives or leftists in terms of Medicare for all and of, you know other types of, of, of minimum increasing the minimum wage, we have to realize what the narrow casting is going to be in terms of our capacity to yeah. influence politics. Definitely. We're stuck in that politics. Definitely. I do think, though, uh, talk to me about uh, how you're viewing the sort of grassroots labor energy right now, how significant you think it is, because in my view, you know, uh, an actual like emboldened left that has a chance to compete electorally and actually wield power, um, a, a strong labor movement is an essential ingredient in enabling that to happen. I don't think that we can, anyone who's familiar with the left history realizes that you can't separate the importance of the labor movement to the left. It's been, it was one of the historically key organizing tools that we had as a left. And I think it's a very, very good sign that we're having an increase in interest in working class unionization and union movements, particularly when I see the, the, the diversity of the people, people like Chris Smalls and a few others who had been on, who has been on our podcast, by the way, who are, who are organizing around places like Amazon, Starbucks, and things of that nature. I would like to see it expand. I'd like to see it grow. And I think that it's one of the best ways of demonstrating to communities, particularly communities of color, that there is a left politics that's interested in their material condition as opposed to just sloganeering buzzwords that may not really make them understand what exactly we're fighting for. And they can, they can see that we're fighting for them to get better jobs, better wages, and better, better employment situations. So I totally agree with you. I'm very, I think that what was happening with that unionization movement was very, very good. And I'm very worried about the way in which the Federal Reserve and the Lords of Capital and, and the banking institutions are going to be responding yeah. to the inflationary situation right now as a means to possibly discipline labor in this kind of period of resurgent labor crisis with these increases in interest rates, which is going to find a way to undercut the capacity to pay union workers or workers in general stable wages, which might, act, as some people like Larry Sumner's are arguing, we need more unemployment. That's going to be the fastest way to neutralize all of this effective uh, labor on you know, labor organizing we're seeing right now. So I'm worried in the long term to see how the Fed and the financial institutions respond to the current uh, uh, inflationary and economic crises and hope they don't put a kibosh on those union organizing movements. I think they I think they actually came out and admitted that, didn't they? Jerome Powell effectively was saying, oh, he said, yeah, he look, we're going to raise the interest rates. Wages need to go down. Larry Summers says we need unemployment at 10 percent for a year. No, yeah, he didn't say he said 10 percent exactly. for a year. I thought he said like 5 percent for five years. He, or some shit. Yeah. So he said 10 percent for a year or 5 percent okay. for five well, years or whatever. Yeah. Jerome Powell, you know, I think the strategy is slowly raise the interest rate, induce a recession, make uh, the unemployment number tick up. And if it stays there for a while, that's their plan to get inflation under control. So the idea is sacrifice working people at the altar of lowering inflation, which really shows, you know, the interests of the Fed. Like, what are they really interested in? 
well, creating a stable economy or creating a stable currency or whatever you might say. But at what cost? Aren't right. there other ways to bring down inflation that don't involve like shoving people into poverty by right. the hundreds of thousands, if not millions? Right. Well, and it's it's not just the Fed because, look, the Fed has certain tools at its disposal and it's, you know, man with a hammer syndrome and that they do what they do. The inflation goes up. They crush working people. That's what the Fed does. Um, but right. part of why everything is left to the Fed is because you have this neoliberal consensus. I mean, both the Republicans and the Democrats are basically on board. The move with the, to monetarism. Yeah, exactly. We're saying like, oh, we can't do any. Sure, this is inflation is caused by supply chain issues and the war that we're intentionally continuing in Ukraine. We're not going to do anything about that part of it. We're just going to crush working people. That's what we're going to do. And Pascal, part of the problem, too, is that it's not even clear as a tool to fight inflation, it's going to work. It might. Um, but you could very easily end up with a situation like in the 70s of stagflation. In fact, we are actually technically facing that right now because we have negative growth and we have high inflation because you, go. you aren't dealing with um, the real underlying problems that are causing the inflation. Not to mention, I didn't even mention, inside, uh, you know, aside from the supply chain crisis, the fact that corporations are just literally jacking up their prices because they're monopolists and because they can. It's, you, you. I mean, you hit it right on the buzz. You sound like you've been watching this revolution that podcast. <laughs> <laughs> maybe a little bit. No, maybe a little bit. <laughs> maybe just a little bit. You're absolutely correct. I mean, it's listen. I asked a guest that we had on. We had well, we had an economist on our show. I said, "Isn't it possible that the way in which the Federal Reserve and the banks are responding to this, in the light of Larry Summers' conversation, uh, com uh, conversation with Joe Biden, is that they using this recessionary fear to discipline labor?" And I don't think it's an impossibility. Kyle was talking to himself just just now about what they actually are talking about mm -hmm. in terms of what why they need to do these things. And I don't think it's a secondary cause at all. I think one of the things they want to do is to neutralize the option of labor and workers to be able to exercise their choice in terms of they want they what they want in demands for their for their employers. And I think that the fear of stagflation is real, and there's no guarantee that these rising interest rates are going to do anything. And why has Biden still been doubling down on all of these uh, 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 um, uh, the economic sanctions against the Russians that are help, helping force in this situation when we have no sign that this war in Ukraine is going in the direction that he wants it to go in the first place. Yeah, and in fact, the, the sanctions on Russia have backfired. I mean, even the New York Times are admitting that the Russian oil ban has actually enriched Putin by helping to spike oil prices, record-breaking oil profits. And yet we're like, yeah, let's just keep doing that. You know, the last question I have for you, Pascal, but it's kind of a big one. Um, is do you who should our allies in this fight be? And do you think that it's possible uh, right now to win over some normie liberals? This has been something that I've been talking about uh, and thinking about a little bit this week because the uh, the Democrats have been so manifestly pathetic in their response to the Roe decision that you even have, you know, columnists in The Washington Post saying these people got to go like this is ridiculous. You even have you know, I'm glad you mentioned it. Yeah, Perry Bacon Jr. I saw, Jr. That, article. I saw yeah. that article. You see the Washington Post, the Washington Post had an article, I forgot the name of the author, where he was reading the riot act to the Democrats for their absolute unwillingness to lay down the gauntlet in how they fight around this abortion issue. Yeah, he called for all of them. He called for all of them to to step down. This is uh, Perry Bacon Jr., who I've actually known for a yes. long time. So you have that. You also have, I mean, 
Listen, college education is not a guarantee of a goddamn thing these days. Um, you know, people who are relying on their 401k to get them through retirement, which is, you know, privatized. You're about to have a stock market completely collapse. Uh, a lot of, you know, precarity and instability, even among people who were feeling like they were sort of economically secure. So do you think that there's an opening for a more uh, radical critique of the Democratic Party among some of the, you know, normie libs who have been vote blue no matter who types for a long time? I absolutely I believe that when you give a left materialist economic base critique of the political status quo to normie libs or people who have not heard it, they their eyes explode because they and I, I've seen it done. And I tell you, what I've seen it done. I saw you do it on Bill Maher. <laughs> I mean, I was very impressed with your performance. Thank there. you. That means because a lot. they don't understand that there are people who have the capacity to understand how our society and economy and politics functions who don't need to use liberal identity politics sloganeering that can give you a breakdown rooted in political economy. And when they see that, they're like, wow, how come I don't hear this kind of analysis more often? You don't hear it because the ruling class is intentionally trying to create a dichotomy between conservatives and liberals who neither one of them want to challenge the lords of capital. And when you make that analysis, they're like, yeah, this makes sense. So I absolutely think that this moment of crisis is a time where we were ripe for an ability to make our case to those people who have not heard our argument before. And that's something that we try to do on our show. This is Revolution Podcast. Yeah, and I highly recommend everybody check that out. Definitely, uh, I think you're a breath of fresh air. I think you did a phenomenal job on Brianna's podcast. Uh, I have since listened to a bunch of yours as well, and it's wonderful. So just one more time, tell everybody where they could find you, whether it be on Twitter or your podcast. This is Revolution Podcast on YouTube. You can find us on all your relative, relevant podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Uh, you know, you check it out on, uh, on all of your podcasts, so Podbeam. And uh, also on YouTube, just this is Revolution Podcast. You go on Twitter, you can find TIR Oakland, where that's our Twitter feed. You can follow me on Twitter at PRobert06. And we're all over. This is Revolution Podcast. You'll find us and you can check out our work. Our catalog is deep and people can check it out. And Pascal, do you have a Patreon or what do you guys depend on for, for we revenue? Do you have a Patreon? Oh, I don't have the, the, the pay. If you go to our people YouTube, can look you'll see the link to the Patreon. Yes, you can find it right there. Yeah, and we'll try to put it in the description too. Um, so great to talk to you. I hope you'll come back. Um, we really are grateful for your time today, Pascal. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed my uh, appearance. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. We'll see you soon. Thank you. All right, that was Pascal Robert of the This Is Revolution podcast. We, Like you said, we first saw him on uh, Brianna Joy Gray's podcast, mm -hmm. and he was with Freddie DeBoer, who we also love. Yeah. Um, had a great combo. Yeah. What were they debating again? I don't remember what they were debating. <sighs> it was like, God, you're going to ask me for my We both have word. dementia, just in case. <laughs> just so I everybody knows. I remember listening. I remember it was <laughs> Don't good. know why you watch us. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it was like, it was like over some, some like woke something. I don't remember. I don't remember. I don't think that's what it was. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it is not over, quote, some woke something. <laughs> I can, I would bet. Almost anything could qualify as that, right? I so guess That's so. a very broad yeah, category. So. Anyway, um, his podcast is really wonderful. His co-host, uh, Jason, is also great. They have really wonderful guests. I've gotten yeah, you've been binging super it. into, I have been binge, Crystal sent me a binge bunch listening. A bunch of um, links. Very thoughtful, very um, just like 
super well informed, deep. I've learned a lot from them. So uh, I'm excited to was excited to get to talk to Pascal and definitely want to, you know, keep him in the, the mix here and breaking points and whatever. So, yeah, uh, that'd be great if he goes on breaking points. I think That's the audience it. would really like him. Yeah, I think I think. But I always I like that so much because the breaking points audience is more ideologically diverse. Yes. And so I like giving them, you know, that's a he's got a phenomenal perspective. Yes. As he almost strikes me as like a traditional Marxist. Like in a, way. Yeah, like kind you of know? classic Marxist yeah. for sure. Yeah, and I think I mean he obviously, look, he just is very comfortable saying things exactly as he sees them. I appreciate his total unwillingness to get into some of the like weird narcissistic bullshit sniping on the left so um just great guy excited to get to talk to him absolutely so anyway guys if you like the show if you support the show substack five dollars a month gets you the video of every interview a day early uh either way sign up on substack you could also sign up for free and you get the audio delivered right to your email box as soon as it's over so thank you so much for everybody who already is a member on substack and if you are not please consider it it's the only way in which we fund this glorious show we're very proud to say we don't take a single ad dollar uh there's no pre-roll ads there's no post-roll ads there's no mid-roll ads there's no ad reads i'm not sitting here talking about fucking me undies or whatever whatever <laughs> that was one of the big ones that people were hawking for a hot minute like buy these underwear and you have these hosts being like i fart in these underwear and it doesn't even smell it's like, <laughs> get back to talking about the fall of the Berlin Wall, bro. I don't want to hear about your asshole. Like, what are we doing here? So anyway. We will never do that to you. Yes, I will never talk about my asshole. <laughs> All right, guys, we love you. We'll see you next week. <laughs>